world. And he said, I know what he would say. He would say, Henry Morehouse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can't say it better than that. Not with our limited ability as human beings to take it in, to soak it up, to understand it. It can't be said better than that. If indeed the Bible is the most read book in human history, and it is, and if indeed the book of John is the most read book in the Bible, and it probably is, and if John chapter 3 is the most well-known and most read chapter in all of the Bible, and it probably is, then John 3.16 would be, accordingly, the most widely read, well-known sentence in all of human history, which is rightly fitting because it deals with the most important issue that can ever be dealt with in any human life, and that is a person's eternal destiny. How would you respond this morning if I were to ask you a few questions in your heart? Think about these questions. If you were to die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? And if you think that you would go to heaven... If you were to get to the gates of heaven and meet Jesus there and he were to ask you why he should let you in, what would be your answer? Is it because you're a decent American? Is it because you have lived a pretty good life? Is it because you've never killed anyone before or done anything along those lines? Is it because you consider yourself pretty religious? Is it because you go to church every now and again? And if your idea about heaven and about how to get into heaven were wrong, would you want to know about it this morning? Keep that in mind. Because as we began last week to study this conversation that's taking place between Nicodemus and Jesus, you remember the vantage point, the perspective that we're coming from in looking at Nicodemus. He's like the Pope of the day. He's the most religious man. If they were going to take a vote on the most religious man in the world at that time, Nicodemus probably would have won that vote. Not only was he a Pharisee, which means there was a group of men that broke away from the nation and held themselves to the strict keeping of the law. There were only 6,000 Pharisees, and he was one of them. But he was also a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the one that held the nation spiritually accountable, the Sanhedrin. And there were only seven, 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And he, at that, was a teacher among the Sanhedrin. Okay, so he wore the robe. He said the prayers. He taught in the synagogues. He was the scholar in Israel of that time. And yet, and yet, the minute that Jesus comes on the scene and begins doing miracles and cleansing the temple, even though he was the most religious man in the world, the minute that happens, Nicodemus knows deep down in his heart right away that something is missing. That if we asked those same questions that I just asked all of you, Nicodemus wouldn't have been able to answer those questions correctly at this point in his life. He knows something's missing. And Jesus agreed with him. Jesus read his heart. He knew what was on his mind. And he knew 
that something was missing. Again, no matter how religious you are, and on the flip side, no matter how big a sinner you are, Jesus said, you must be born again. And poor Nicodemus is having a hard time figuring out what Jesus is talking about. He's having a hard time grasping the subject matter. Not that he's being argumentative. I believe he's sincere here. I believe he's genuine. But it's like anyone else that is seeking the Lord at any time on this planet in human history. Nicodemus, just from a little different angle. How can I be born again? How would it happen? I mean, I'm the most religious man in the most religious nation. Israel, God's chosen people. How can I be born again, Lord? In the same way that millions will attend a church across America this morning or in the world, and they'll ask that question sometimes from a different angle. How can I be born again? You don't know the kind of crimes that I've committed. You don't understand the sin that's in my heart, the things that I've done. Lord, how can I be born again? That's the question on Nicodemus's mind as we pick up where we left off last time. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Nicodemus still trying to figure this out. It says, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? The only limitation we have sometimes with reading as opposed to talking is you can't hear tone of voice. So he could have said this one of two ways. He could have been like, oh, how can this be, Jesus? That someone can be born again. And I don't think that's the tone of voice he has. And you know why? Because later on, we would come to know that Nicodemus probably was born again. So I believe he's a true seeker here. I think the question is more like, how? How can these things be in my life, Lord? I want to know how I can be born again. And Jesus answered and said to him, verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Notice the way that's worded. Are you the teacher of Israel? Not a teacher in Israel. Aren't you the teacher? Not just someone who taught in the synagogues or in the divinity schools. You are the teacher in all of Israel. The King James has it translated master. As if to say, aren't you that master scholar that master teacher that everyone knows about, shouldn't you know these things already? Especially since the Old Testament prophets had been looking to and pointing to that day when a new covenant would come. That was something they had been talking about for years and years. A new covenant that would correspond to the working of a spirit that would mark that covenant. Surely the nation's most outstanding teacher and greatest scholar would understand how God by his sovereign grace, could come inside the life of a person and give them a new heart and give them a new spirit and a new life. The new covenant and the discussion of the new covenant perhaps would have been the kind of thing that a scholar like Nicodemus would have been most familiar with. It's what they were looking towards. It's what they were believing in. It's what their faith and hope was in, that new covenant someday. But here's the thing. Nicodemus, he had a lot of knowledge, but he didn't know God. Understand this morning, there are a lot of people that are going to miss heaven by the distance of about 18 inches. What they know about God here, but not knowing God here in their heart. See, Nicodemus had been studying 
his whole life. He knew his Bible forward, backward, upside down. He knew it, but he missed the thing he should have most known because he didn't know God. And we'll see that, that Jesus suggests that as much here as we continue. And you'll understand why even someone with as much knowledge as him could have missed it. Most assuredly, verse 11, I say to you, Jesus is speaking here, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, he's not even getting the basics down. Nicodemus is struggling on 2 plus 2, and he wants to jump to advanced trigonometry. We saw last week that what Jesus is saying here when he says, you're struggling with earthly things. How can I explain heavenly things? Remember last week his example was the wind. He said, you don't have to understand how it all works. You see the effects of the wind. It comes and goes, and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Was what he said. You can't observe the wind. You can't put your fingers on the wind, but you don't deny it's there. Same thing with the new birth. Same thing with being born again. Same thing with the work of the Spirit. You can't really see it happening, but you know it does because of the effects. So Nicodemus, you don't have to understand how it all works up front. You just have to believe. One of the problems was, though, and this is what I was getting to when I said Nicodemus, as knowledgeable as he was, he couldn't understand. Jesus himself said that that would be the case because he said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In fact, the Bible says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. For you saints, keep that in mind. When you're sharing your faith, it's important to remember that when you're sharing the Lord Jesus with someone, you're not going to get a whole lot of understanding up front until they are born again. And you have to remember that because you can start talking about eschatology and dispensationalism and you can debate creation and evolution and you can debate the world's religions or have a philosophical exchange but at some point, you got to take them to the cross. you got to take them to the cross because until they're born again, you might be kind of spinning your wheels a little bit. You ever done that before? I know I have. Got into a debate, turned into this big, long argument with someone who cannot even see the kingdom of God, who spiritual knowledge to them is foolishness at that point. It's just someone who just can't be reasoned with. you got to take them to the cross. It's what Jesus is going to do here with Nicodemus. Not that Nicodemus is an unreasonable man per se, but he's not getting it because he's clouded with information, but he doesn't know God, despite the fact that he was chatting with God. And the only one who was truly qualified to explain to him how it works, Nicodemus comes on the scene. He starts saying, oh, we know you come from God because you can do miracles and you are a great teacher and all this. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I know what you came to ask me about, you want to know how you can get into heaven. And unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's true for even you, Nicodemus. How do we know that Jesus is the authority? How do we know that he's the one that can t 
tell Nicodemus that, that can look him in the eye and say, you're the most religious leader in the day, but you're lacking something? He says it in verse 13. He says, no one, Jesus again speaking here, has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. In other words, Nicodemus, you want to know how you can go to heaven? You want to know how you can be born again? You want to know how you can inherit eternal life? Well, you're talking to the authority on the subject. You're standing face to face with the one who knows best. Because nobody has gone to heaven. Nobody has ascended to heaven and come back to tell us about it. Amen? First of all, if I go to heaven, I'm not coming back. How about you? <laughs> Absolutely not. There are a lot of people that have claimed to have gone to heaven, and now they're back to write a book about it and appear on Oprah. And they're also here to warn us that what the church is saying about it is not true. And then we know that they're wrong right away because God is never going to give someone a vision of heaven that doesn't correspond to his word. It's always going to line up with the scriptures. Lots of people have lots of ideas about heaven or how to get to heaven. But the question that we have is, how can we trust those folks? How do we know that they're telling us the truth? How can you trust that Buddha knows the path to enlightenment when he's dead now and never came back to tell us that what he did actually worked. But see, that's exactly what Jesus did. He not only descended to earth to live with us, he ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father after the resurrection, but he was in heaven before he dwelt among us from eternity past with God. He is God, so you can trust him. He's the only one who can truly say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ, because he did do it all. And so he only alone knows truly of heavenly things. He has a perfect understanding of God's grand plan. And so he's the only one who could help Nicodemus connect the dots. And I love the passage that he uses here to help Nicodemus connect the dots, because it's both a passage that pointed to what Nicodemus, I believe, would later see, would sink in, and when he would become born again, is when he would see this Old Testament prophecy Jesus is about to describe come true, fulfilled literally in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not just going to teach him and point him to the truth here, but he's going to become the literal fulfillment of it as well. Maybe you remember the passage, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's from Numbers 21, a story for sure that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. But now he would come to know it in a more full, in a more complete, and a life-changing way. Even if he didn't quite get it, until he saw Jesus on the cross and then went, oh, that's what he was talking about. Maybe you know, again, what happened in that story. The Israelites were just on the border of the promised land. And they had begun to complain, as was their nature. They hated God again. They hated Moses. They hated the manna, tired of the manna. They would go back to Egypt. We can get vegetables there. They were complaining as they were doing. It's a good warning for you and me. Because that picture is how, you know, the deliverance from Egypt is how we get delivered from our bondage, 
from our bondage of sin, and then so we can get to that place where we're still complaining and murmuring against God? Well, that's what they were doing. And so what did God do in that story? He sent snakes into the midst of the camp. Snakes, a picture of evil, picture of sin. He sent snakes into the midst of the camp, and they begin biting the Israelites one by one, and one by one they start dying off without hope. And true to form, as the Israelites were, it's only when the chips are down, when things are going against them, when they're in the midst of the trial, that then they look up and cry out to God, save us from this. They go to Moses. They say, Moses, say something, do something. So God commanded Moses to take a brass serpent. Remember the story? And he hung it on top of that pole. And he commanded the Israelites to look upon, with faith, to look upon that serpent. And if you look upon, that's all you had to do, look upon that serpent and you would live. Now the interesting thing about that passage is that passage sat for 1,500 years. There wasn't a rabbi on the planet who could make heads or tails out of it. They had no idea what it meant until this point in history where it becomes a striking foreshadow, a symbol, a type of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That brass serpent represented Jesus Christ, who Paul said, he who knew no sin became sin. When he was on that cross, he became sin. He took upon our sin for you and for me. And the way that one becomes born again is to look to Jesus, to place your trust in Jesus. And that was all that the Israelites were asked to do. You look at that serpent on the pole, and you will live. Now keep in mind two things from Numbers 21. First of all, the poisonous bite of those snakes in that scene was terminal. And number two, there was only one cure. They had to look to that serpent in faith. Not concoct some remedy, not fight the servants, not uh, serpents, not take up an offering, not pray, certainly not look to Moses, but look at that serpent up on top of that pole. The only thing that was required was a look of faith. And it didn't matter how many times they were bitten or how infected they were. Think about that. They just had to look by faith at that serpent on the pole. Well, I don't understand how that works. You don't have to understand how that works or why. You just have to believe. And you know it had to happen, right? Classic. It had to happen. We know it had to happen. That there were some Israelites there, and they're being bitten, and they're dying off one by one, and they're in this terrible condition, and someone comes along and says, all you have to do, Moses said, is look at the serpent on the pole. That's all you have to do. And you'll live. And you got to believe some people were like, well, I don't know. That's kind of narrow-minded. Isn't there another way to do it? It's a little bit exclusive. How would that work anyway? I'm not so sure that I can believe that. There's got to be more than one way. And, you know, we can rationalize and internalize to death, can't we? And some will do it all the way to eternal death. They'll just rationalize away instead of just looking to Jesus to believe. All you got to do is believe. It's that simple. And I got to tell you something. You're here this morning, and you're not a regular attender here. You may not know this, but you're in with us in a certain club. 
We're all in a club of people that have been snake bit by sin. Every single one of us, born dead in their trespasses of sin. Every single one of us. You've blown it before? Yeah. You ever told a lie? Yeah. Or else, if you say no, then you're lying right now, right? <laughs> it's the old thing, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. And all you have to do is simply trust in him that he can provide that serum, right? That antitoxin there to take away that sin, to cover it over for all of eternity. And why? Because God so loves you. You believe that this morning? God so loves you. You may have heard the next verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Of the 31,000 some odd verses in the Bible, this is by far got to be the most popular one. Matt asked me if when I read that, if he could hold a big John 3.16 sign up in the back like we're at a football game or something. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, go ahead. Where's your sign? <laughs> but the reason why I think this is such a popular verse is it kind of sums up everything, right? I was with Jim Rackley a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about John 1. We had begun John. He said, you know, what we went over in John 1 is everything I believe. And I said, Amen. And that's how I feel about John 3.16. It's the Bible in miniature. 25 words from the master communicator that succinctly and specifically sum up the gospel message. Let's break it down just a little bit, okay? For God so loved the world. That's why Jesus came. Bottom line, I don't care what anybody else tells you, it's because God so loved the world. People think that God is like this angry God in the sky and he's got a lightning bolt in his hand and he's just waiting for us to mess up so he can smoke us. That is not our God. He loves you so much you are his treasured possession. He'd rather die than live without you. He says he's numbered the very hairs on your head. We may never know how costly the cross was. We may never be able to measure the love that was behind the cross. But as one pastor once said, all we can do is fall back on that elastic particle. So, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What is the degree of his love? Exactly how much does God love us? Well, how do you determine the value of something? You determine the value of something based upon what someone is willing to pay. What did the father pay? His only begotten son. If I were to ask one of you to sacrifice one of your children for your best friend in the whole world, you couldn't do it. Let alone someone you didn't know. Let alone someone who's an enemy of yours walking in rebellion against you. You couldn't do it. And yet, it says that whoever, whoever, no matter what country you are, male or female, what race you are, 
whoever, Jew or Gentile, whoever believes in him. But that's the key, right? Belief. Because the word believe is more than just an intellectual understanding of God's plan of salvation. There are a lot of people who could articulate God's plan of salvation, but they're not born again. The demons believe, the Bible tells us, the demons believe in God. The demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that if you put your faith in his sacrifice on the cross, that you will be saved. But there's not going to be a single demon in heaven. So it's not merely an intellectual thing, and it's more than an emotional thing. You could sit here and weep throughout the entire service and not necessarily leave here saved, leave here born again. Believing is this, pay attention now, is putting your whole confidence for your soul, for your eternal destiny into God's hands. Trusting Jesus that his sacrifice is the only thing that will allow you to enter into heaven, to inherit eternal life. It's trusting your whole self. It's placing your entire weight of your life on Jesus Christ. When you walked in this morning, you sat down and you believed that the chair you were sitting on was going to hold you up throughout the entire service. That's a faith proposition, okay? These chairs are new. I think they'll do the job. But you believe by faith. And the same thing is there except multiplied by eternity. I'm going to rest my entire self, my soul, on Jesus Christ. There was a missionary and he was overseas in another land, and he was trying to find a word in the native language for belief. He was struggling to find the right word that he could fill in to teach the natives about John 3.16. And finally one day, he saw one of the natives who had been having a rough day, running around doing all kinds of crazy things, run into his hut, leap up on top of his hammock, sigh, and he said one word. And then he rested there, and that missionary asked him, what was that one word that you said when you rested upon the hammock? What did that word mean? He said, it meant, I am resting all my weight here. And he said, that's it. That's the word I was looking for. That's what belief is. I'm going to rest my whole self on Jesus Christ, on his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. That that pays the price for my sins and allows me to inherit eternal life. Casting oneself unreservedly into the hands of our Lord, into Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm resting my soul into your hands for all of eternity. Because that's the last part of that verse, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm so glad that nobody has to perish, but many will, because they will choose not to believe. They will choose to reject Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning and you've rejected Christ or you haven't made up your mind yet, you might want to give that some thought again this morning. Let me ask you a question. How long is everlasting? I mean, how long is 
everlasting. It's outside of space and time, right? But 50 billion years from now, we're still going to be there. That's everlasting. We'll still be in that everlasting sequence. That's a long time. Let me clue you in on something. You probably already know this. You're going to be dead a lot longer and you're going to be alive. By far. Such an important decision. And so Jesus here, I, I appreciate taking the time. He could have just blasted Nicodemus. Come on, you're the Pope of the day and you don't know? But no, he takes the time. He's patient. He didn't come, as the next verses tell us, to come down on people. He didn't come to point the finger. Look what it says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Did you get that? He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. You Christians, you're always condemning. You're condemning homosexuality. You're condemning abortion. You're condemning sin. You're always condemning. No, we're not. It's condemned already. The whole thing's condemned already, the Lord Jesus said. We're just trying to tell them to get out while they can and find the Lord so that they wouldn't be anymore. I love the way J. Vernon McGee put it. He said, there are a great many who feel that the world is on trial today. It is not. Our position is something more like a man who is in prison being asked whether or not he will accept a pardon. That is the gospel. It is not telling the man he's on trial. He's already condemned. He is already in prison awaiting execution. But the gospel tells him a pardon is offered to him. The point is, will you accept the pardon? Because the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And that his desire is that all people would be saved. So Jesus has come. Not to bring condemnation, but to bring life, to bring salvation to you and to me. He came not to point the finger, not to come down on people, but to reach out to people. You know the old story, right? The old parable. There's a man who decided he was going to try to travel, the foot, uh, travel by foot the entire globe. And somewhere along his travels, he got stuck in quicksand. And as he slowly began to sink... Along came Confucius. <laughs> and Confucius says, Confucius say it is evident that man should avoid such situations. And he went on his way. <laughs> and Muhammad said, Alas, Allah wills. And he went on his way. And Buddha came along and said, Let this man's dilemma be an illustration for many. And he went on his way. Krishna came by and said, Well, better luck next time. And he went on his way. And Jesus came by and said nothing and held out his hand to pull the man in. And he does the exact same thing for every single one of us this morning. He reaches out his hand and he offers for you to take it so that he can pull you out of the quicksand of the sin that's in your life. But the tragic response, tragic, tragic response from so many is that they will refuse to come to Jesus and so they will be, they will remain to be condemned until they do. 
Do you know that there's an estimated 100,000 people that die every year in the United States from preventable diseases? There is a cure, but for one reason or another, they just choose not to take it, not to take the vaccine. Now, to you and to me, we hear that and we go, that's lunacy. But how much more crazy is it to reject Jesus Christ, who has the vaccine for eternity? I mean, again, time's infinity. And that's what people are doing. God has done everything he can to help people become born again. But he won't force anyone. Right? That's the big thing. If you want to run right over the cross of Christ into hell, that's your decision. He's not going to force anyone. He can't. It's a love offering. Forced love is a contradiction. doesn't make any sense. You've got to choose to love him back. And so the question that boggles all of our minds this morning is why wouldn't just everyone accept Jesus? Well, as he looks at the last few verses here, Jesus, I believe, gives us the answer to that question. He says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Why don't people come to the light, Jesus says? It's not because they have a problem with the gospel intellectually. It's not because they're struggling with it philosophically. In reality, they don't come to the light because, he says, they prefer the darkness. In other words, they love their sin too much. Again, important for us to remember when we're sharing our faith with people about Jesus Christ, when we're sharing our faith, you need to remember when someone's trying to question you or undermine your faith that the deal is never, ever evolution. It's never Cain's wife. It's never the virgin birth. That's not it right there. It's that, that they love their sin, that the love of their sin trumps in their mind an invitation to be loved by the creator and to the point where ultimately they just end up choosing to ignore the creator all throughout their life. That is the one and only way that someone can remain condemned. They got to choose to just block that out because the Lord's speaking. The Bible says that he's put the consciousness of himself on all of our hearts you can't walk up and down a street corner without seeing some imagery not too long in life or someone passing you a tract or someone at work sharing their faith with you or hearing something on TV. It's just a matter of time. You have to choose to block that out. I was on a website yesterday where that was the goal of that website. It's an atheist forum where atheists who are struggling when they hear these key words that freak them out. Words like God, words like devil, words like heaven, hell, salvation, righteousness, sin. When they hear those words, it drives them insane. And so there's this forum they can go to get coaching on how to block those words out. I can't think of a more atrocious 
service. I can't think of something more out of the pit of hell. Coaching people on how to deal intellectually, emotionally with their atheism. Because keep in mind, it's so dangerous that they do that because that's the only way someone can remain condemned is to just choose to block him out. Because remember, go back to verse 18. He said, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Well, because he's done a lot of wickedness. No, because he's killed a bunch of people. No, this guy is the worst, man. He's a corrupt person. He's a liar. No, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, sometimes we think what sends someone to hell is some especially grievous, heinous, wicked kind of sin. No, it's just choosing to reject God's Son, Jesus Christ, all throughout life. That is the only sin that results in permanent condemnation. Now, you shouldn't come to God out of fear, per se, but out of a response to his pull, out of a desire to have a relationship with him, to love him as he loves you. But let me tell you, you do not want to be separated from God in hell for all of eternity. You just don't. Do you have any sense at all what hell is like? There was a church outside of Atlanta. They had one of those signs like we have out front here. And uh, I don't think someone had thought through the progression of what they'd put on the sign. It had the name of the church on the top line and then it had the pastor's name on the second line. We won't ever do that. But... And then on the third line was the passage that he was going to be speaking out of. And the title of the message um, which was, do you know what hell is? And then on the bottom line, it says, uh, come here, our organist, Sunday morning. <laughs> do you know what hell is? Come here. I don't think they thought that through very well. <laughs> but sometimes we use the word hell to describe things on earth, right? Oh, my job is hell. No, uh, I don't think so. <clears throat> It's not like that at all. And you know what? It's not a big party for rebels. It's not a big ACDC concert. <laughs> it's not that way at all. It is a real place. I don't want to get off subject and talk about hell this morning, but hell is a real place. The Bible describes it as outer darkness, unquenchable fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the worst part. It's a place, by definition, where God is not it's where his presence isn't. And not the Lord nor anyone in this church would want anyone to come to him on the basis of fear to get their get-out-of-hell-free card or their spiritual fire insurance. That wouldn't be real anyway. You can't just raise your hand one time and then just go on your merry That's not what it's about. It's a true confession that you're a sinner and that you want to have a relationship with him, that you believe that he died in your place that he substituted in your place that he took that punishment on the cross so that you can have a relationship with him it's trusting your soul casting yourself unreservedly into his arms and saying lord you take my place reminds me of that old illustration consider yourself put yourself in this circumstance 
you've lived a life of crime and you've been tried and you've been found guilty and the judge has pronounced the sentence, death by electric chair and now you await execution. And you know you're deserving of the punishment even though you're repentant now, you've confessed your sin, but nevertheless, you've accepted your consequences. You're strapped to the chair and the switch is about to be thrown until you hear some footsteps. It's the judge. He's come to set you free. And you can't believe it. And as you're walking down the corridor to your freedom, walking past you is another man. And that man is going to that very chair you just came from. And you say, who is that? What did that man do to deserve this punishment, you think, curiously? And the judge yells out, nothing at all. He's the best man I've ever known. He's my son, and he offered to take your place. That is the gospel message right there in a nutshell. A full pardon available to you this morning. And as we close this morning in prayer and with every head bowed, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I know oftentimes as believers, we're moved by God and we love him and we want to rededicate ourselves to him this morning. But really, we want to provide an opportunity for someone who's never really, truly given their life to Jesus Christ. 